I'm in obscure trivia. So what is Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk's favorite drink? Stick around to see if you actually know the answer. Hello and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, R.T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick from the golden age to now. I have been reading comic books for over 40 years and have never lost my passion for comic books. Something I try to pass on to old and new readers. Hello and welcome to episode 24, March 23rd, 2022. This time around, I decided to do a primer on three characters, Amazing Spider-Man, Alan Scott's Green Lantern, and She-Hulk. All three characters have been around for decades, and the Alan Scott Green Lantern has been around since the Golden Age. Oftentimes, it's hard to give a primer to characters because everybody knows everything there is to know about them. However, this time around, I think it's a different approach than uh, you might expect. Stick around, see my primers on all three characters. Let me know what you think at fantasticcomicfan at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next time. One of the things that Marvel does better than DC is honoring the past and their legacy characters. Unfortunately, DC tends to shuffle off characters and pretend they never existed. The biggest example is the members of the Justice Society, which were killed off, written out of continuity, banished to another realm, and probably a few other things I'm forgetting. In recent years, the JSA seem to be floating somewhere around in DC's current continuity, and there are hints that someone's working on a JSA revival. But of course, the hinting about has been annoyingly going on for a few years. Now, a few of the JSA members have popped up and even had a major part in Doomsday Clock. Specifically, Dr. Manhattan, I believe, moving away Alan Scott from a certain Green Lantern. Since Alan Scott didn't get that lantern, he didn't become Green Lantern, and there was no JSA until Doomsday Clock changed it back to where it's supposed to be. I'm not exactly sure. Doomsday Clock seems to start one way and morph into another way. I'm not even sure how much of it fits into DC mythos anymore. Now, Alan Scott has always been a major player in the JSA. Recently, they reintroduced him and his children, Jade and Obsidian, back into current continuity. However, I'm sure most newer fans don't know about Alan Scott, whom they retrofed into a gay character. Since there are so few, I'm hoping DC uses him more and not less. For the newer fans, I found a great primer on Alan Scott in the form of Secret Origins 18 from 1986. After Crisis, DC relaunched a new Secret Origins series. It helped fans understand how the DC mythos changed and allowed a spotlight on characters who really deserved more attention. Usually the book contained two origins, one from characters at the time going on in the DC mythos, and another spotlighting spot Golden Age characters. For fans of the JSA and All-Star Squadron, this whole part of the mythos was mostly written by Roy Thomas. Newer fans owe it to themselves to check out Roy because of his contributions to the industry. While Stanley was important, there are other creators and behind-the-scenes people who were also important and changed the comic industry. And Roy Thomas, he was one of those. He succeeded Lee at Marvel, 
but eventually made his way to DC Comics. His level of detail and devotion honoring the legacy of DC's past made for great reading. Thomas would often take Golden Age stories and weave them into modern day stories. You can see this throughout his run of All-Star Squad. Now, the origin of the Golden Age Green Lantern is no different, as Roy takes threads from All-American Comics 16 and 18 from 1940, combines with modern-day Green Lantern mythos, and gives a clear idea who Island Scott and his Green Lantern hero. Now, it would be unfair to give Roy all the credit for this fantastic origin, as George Freeman should get credit for perfectly balancing the art between the look of a Golden Age-style story and keeping it modern-day fresh. Some fans remember his work from Captain Canuck series, which older fans still finally remember. Captain Canuck was from a Canadian superhero long before Alpha Flight, and it was even published by a Canadian comic book publisher. In the origin, Thomas manages to retrofit Scott's Earth to origin to the Green Lantern Corps mythos. One of the casualties of the crisis was the elimination of multiple Earths. Well, at least for a time... Unfortunately, not all the denizens of Earth 2 fared as well, and I'm talking to you, Power Girl and Huntress. Through Thomas's genuine affection for Scott, and really all the Golden Age heroes, we have an origin that made sense in the post-crisis DC. Let it be known, this is not just about how Scott became Green Lantern. Instead, he gives a 22-page story from the planet Oa to China to the World's Fair. Heck, even Gotham gets a drive-by. It takes place in pre-World War II, but not by much, and there's even a case for Scott to solve his Green Lantern. Again, if you know little about Alan Scott and the Golden Age Green Lantern, this represents a great place to learn more about it. Yes, the comic is decades old, but good stories never go out of style. New fans who stick to the latest releases are missing on fantastic reads by not going back and reading older comics like this. This is a fantastic read. I believe Alan Scott and the whole JSA are going to make a comeback soon, and this issue will get you primed and wanting to see more of the Golden Age Green Lantern. This Dawn of One comes from the Bronze Age of Comics, and it's Amazing Spider-Man 181 from 1978. The issue was so special, three of Marvel's great writers, Bill Mantlo, Archie Goyland, and Len Wein came up with the story. Sal Buscema and Mike Esposito handled the art. Even after all this time, this story has a great primer to everything Spider-Man, from his foes to his origin to the people he cared about. Now, the issue starts with Peter visiting Uncle Ben's grave and spends the next few pages retelling the origin. If you don't know that origin, you should. It remains iconic. Next, it briefly goes into the retelling of him attempting to join the Fantastic Four, which he had tried in Amazing Spider-Man number one. It would be years before he actually did join the Fab Four. From there, we get introduced to the sporting cast that came into Peter's life. At the beginning, his relationship with J. Jonah Jameson was not always friendly. In fact, a case could be made that old J.J. was his greatest foe. Besides just the directly supporting cast, we also touch upon the other tragedies in Peter's life at this time. The death of Gwen Stacy and her father, Captain Stacy. You'll notice throughout the issue, there's a lot of footnotes. This was a thing at one time. For you, it acts as great signposts to delve deeper into the Spider-Man mythos. 
Back then, legacy and history counted more. Today, new creators often come aboard with a new, new number one and ignore the past continuity or find creative ways to get out of it. Spider-Man has always had great baddies to fight. Harry briefly introduced almost all of them up to the time. The big ones, like Mysterio and Electro and the Lizard. And the not-so-big, like the Beetle and Stegron the Dinosaur Man. Back then, the seeds were still being planted for perhaps his greatest love. And the one relationship that still proves elusive in recent years. That of Mary Jane Watson. Now the issue ends with Aunt May visiting Uncle Ben's grave and pre Peter reaffirming his belief that he as both Peter and Spider-Man can change the world for the better. Again, this makes a great done-in-one, especially for fans who only know Spider-Man through the movies. You really should check it out. It's worth reading. I know some people tend to be a tad superstitious. I know you can't see me right now, but that's me enthusiastically waving my hand. But for Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk, you can make a good case that 13 is her lucky number. So now before anyone can say, I object, Your Honor, let me explain. Her first appearance was in Savage She-Hulk, released November 13, 1979. The very first story was written by none other than Stan Lee. As everyone knows, he didn't write many comics at that time, let alone create new characters. Along with the first issue is John Buscema doing the pencils. His contributions to Marvel Mythos are countless and legendary. Do I hear crickets from the opposing council? Your Honor, I rest my case. 13 is She-Hulk's lucky number. Looking a little closer, the real reason the character was created is corporate boring. As with the original Spider-Man, it was to protect and secure the trademark, lest someone else did. Remember, The Incredible Hulk had been a popular and successful TV action show back then. Spin-offs were popular back then, and Marvel was being proactive, lest that production company spin off a She-Hulk series. After that first issue, the remaining issues were written by David Anthony Kraft and penciled by Mike Vosberg. Unfortunately, the series closed a mere two years later with issue 25. However, that didn't keep Jenna out of the action for long. The Avengers would come knocking at her door. During this time, Marvel's editor-in-chief, Jim Shearer, had his fingers in Avengers Mythos and was writing and or co-writing the series. Newer fans probably have no idea who Jim Shooter is and his contributions not only to Marvel Comics, but the industry as a whole. Briefly, Shooter's stint as Editor-in-Chief is marked as both good and bad for comics. Personally, I have no opinion. I'm not one to be overly critical. There are too many great comics and creators to waste time on being negative. Shooter, however, he began his writing in Legion of Superhero Stories in 1966 at the age of 14. Yes, at age 14, and he contributed to some iconic Legion of Superhero tales. Now back to the Avengers. Their membership had been pretty small for a while, consisting of Wasp, Thor, and Iron Man, and I believe Captain America. So in Avengers 221 from 1982, they had one of their membership pushes. Generally, these are pretty cool. But this one with its red covers and grid of heroes states, who will be the newest of the Avengers? While the issue is rather low-key, Janet the Wasp 
wants more female members, so she decides to hold a women's only luncheon to discuss joining the Avengers. The guest, which includes Dazzler, Spider-Woman, Invisible Girl, Black Widow, and She-Hulk, would make a fantastic team all by itself. However, in the end, She-Hulk joins the group and gets a lot more recognition with fans. For me, it was here that She-Hulk started to become a character I liked and not appear just as a female version of the Hulk. Yeah, she had a lot of good things going on before joining the Avengers, but something was missing. Or else her first series wouldn't have been canceled, right? However, truthfully, it wasn't until she joined the Fantastic Four that I fell in love with the She-Hulk. That would come when she replaced the Thing and the Fantastic Four after Secret Wars. Big events are so common now in Marvel and DC Comics that they almost appear and feel like non-events. But, and at the end of the day, nothing really happens or changes anymore. Secret Wars back in 1984 was different. Actually special. First, it was Marvel's big event. First big event. Second, the heroes disappeared at the end of their book for one month, and the next book returned. Some of those characters faced big changes between those two issues, like when Spider-Man first wore his black suit. He had to wait for 12 issues of Secret Wars to play out over the next year to find out what happened and why it all happened. Now, back over at the Fantastic Four, it was gaining a huge fan appreciation because Jan Byrne had taken over the writing and art duties a few years previously, starting in Fantastic Four 232. For me, it felt like stories that took place right after Jack and Stan left the series. Not throwing any shade at any other creators, because there have been some great runs by those creators. Still, it felt like a back-to-the-basics approach, and I really liked it. And, well, I'm not going to say much more, because that would be defeating the purpose. I'm not going to give you an issue-by-issue issue recap. Instead, my style is hoping you get encouraged to check out this part of She-Hulk's long history. From the time she got introduced in her first series, her stint as Avengers, and then Fantastic Four. Everyone needs a refresher, right? So pick a spot. Whatever you choose, I hope you won't be disappointed, but inspired to delve more into the She-Hulk. Before we wrap up, let's get that trivia question. What was Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk's favorite drink? That would be great knee-high, which you can find out and check for yourself in Incredible Hulk number 106 from way back in 2007. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you, a fantastic comic fan at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.